Good morning, Genesis. I wanted to share a few things that I think are foundational for us. As not only the community of Genesis, but more importantly, as followers of Christ. See, there are two things that need to be taking place. One is we are being made into his disciples, and the other is that we are making disciples. That is our purpose here. That is what we were supposed and are supposed to do. And so I want to take a few weeks and talk about what it means to be a disciple and what it means to make disciples of those who are around us. And I think it can be a life-changing thing when we recognize exactly what that means because unfortunately discipleship is a word that we think of or maybe it's just me I think of a oh, discipleship you go to a class you know and then you someone talks to you or they give you a book or they give you a handout sheet and you fill out these things and that means I'm I'm being discipled but that's really not what it's about see in first John 417 it tells us that by this love is perfected within us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. And that's what discipleship is, is being made into the image of Jesus. You see, the word disciple, it means a learner, a pupil. It's someone who studies but specifically studies a person. At the time of Christ, the Hebrews, the rabbis, they would develop disciples around them, and they were usually young boys from the age of 12 to 16. And you would see a disciple walking down the street, and all around him would be these young boys following him, wanting to be like him. And so they followed him everywhere he went. They wanted to know how did he conduct himself when he did business. They wanted to know how he talked when he spoke to the people. They wanted to know everything about him because their objective was to be him. One of the sayings at that time was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you follow behind him so much that his dust kicks up on you and is evident on you. May you be like your rabbi. And so now here we are, followers of Christ, and what that means is we are to be like Jesus. Now that should terrify you if you think about it. How can I be like Jesus? But that's what we are called to do. You see, Christianity isn't this club where we get together and we meet with people who have similar minds or part of the same political party and have all these things in common and we enjoy each other's company. You know, we can get the Grand Poobah hats, you know, and the Water Buffalo Lodge. And those of you who've watched the Flintstones know what I'm talking about. And I'll have this meeting where we're together. That's not what this is about. And you see, Jesus presses into our lives and tells us things like, if you aren't to be my disciple, you need to hate father, sister, mother, brother, anyone compared to how you love me. 
He tells us that if you want to be my disciple, you need to pick up your cross, an instrument of death, and you have to follow after me. It will cost you everything. And no man putting his plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom, and you need to count the cost if you're going to follow me. No one starts to build up something and halfway through says, oh, I couldn't finish what I built. They'll mock him. So it is with me. You have to count the cost of what it means to follow after me. And he presses into our lives, and he tells us, be like me. And John says, as he is, Jesus That's what we are to be in this world. Now, how are we measuring up? Where do we fit? How do we stand in? How can we be like Jesus? What does that look like? How is that displayed in our lives? And I want to look at a few things that are helpful, I think, in in starting. First of all, our our starting point is understanding who God is. And and what are the characteristics of God? What are some things that you know about God? Shout them out. Go ahead. Love. He's love. What else? Faithful. Forgives. Forgives. Characteristics about God. How do we know who God is? We know who God is. Because Jesus has made him known. In Hebrews chapter 1, we went through this as we went through the book of Hebrews. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son, this is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. The way we understand the character and things of God, things like love, things like forgiveness, the things that we've mentioned, is because we can see them in Jesus. And we understand God by what we know of Jesus. It's not the other way around. You don't understand Jesus by what you know of God. We have a clear understanding of God because of the person of Jesus. Now, what this does for us is it brings this omnipotent, all-knowing God who is vast beyond our comprehension to a place where we can dialogue and see his dialogue and understand how he thinks, what he does, what he is about, and it is confronting us where we can understand it. And so we see God in the person of Jesus Christ, and now we understand who God is. We understand how he thinks, what he does, how he loves. Greg Boyd wrote a description, and he says, Jesus spent his ministry freeing people from evil and misery. This is what God seeks to do. Jesus wars against spiritual forces that oppress people and resist God's purposes. This is what God does. Jesus loved people that others rejected, even people who rejected him. This is how God loves. 
Jesus had nothing but compassion for people who were afflicted by sin, disease, and tragedy. This is how God feels. And Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, suffering in the place of sinful humanity, defeating sin and the devil because he passionately loves people and wants to reconcile them to God. This is how God saves. And so now we have this clear, radiant image of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we look at Jesus, we see what we are supposed to be. And we see that the image of God that dwells in each of us because we are his handiwork, what that is supposed to look like played out in our lives. And so now we are frightfully aware of who God is and how we can approach him and what he is about. And he's called us to be like him. And now we have an example of what that is. And Jesus, one day, when he was teaching, he was brought before someone. And in Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31, if you turn there, we pick up on this account. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Would you like to ask God, God, what is the most important thing for me to do? Wouldn't you love to know what God thinks is the most important thing to do? Well, remember, we see God through the person of Jesus Christ. Listen up. He's going to tell us. Isn't that cool? You get to hear right now what God wants of our lives. And here it is. Verse 29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And so Jesus gives this understanding of what God wants, what is most important of God, what is to be displayed in our lives, and it's called the Shema of Israel. It is the declaration that there is only one God, and what that means is that God exists, and we need to conform to him. He doesn't conform to us. In other words, this is combating idolatry. You don't make for yourself other gods and worship other things. He tells you how to worship. He shows you what it is to worship because he is the person that we worship. And it tells us that we are to love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And I love Jesus adds to it. He says, what's the one? And he gives them two. It's not because he couldn't count. It's because you can't separate them. The other is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he tells them what they need to do and understand that they are supposed to love God with everything that they have. And it would seem that being like Jesus, loving like Jesus, would make an impact 
on those around them. Curious thing. Jesus tells us that we are to love God with all that we have. The, the Shema that contains a revelation that God is one. It shows us that God wants to be loved and worshipped in every aspect of our life. As he talks about heart, soul, body, mind, and strength, God wants to be worshipped in all these areas. The clear implication is that nothing in life and culture and the human experience lies outside of this. That it includes everything. It includes our work. It includes our play. It includes our creativity. It includes our sexuality. It includes our money. It includes it all. It's supposed to be a worship to God. Love him with everything. With how you think. With how you act. With what you do. And so what does that look like to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength? Again, we have the picture of Jesus. There's two questions that are intriguing to ask. Why is it that Jesus, the image of God, when he was among us, that his holiness, that his uniqueness, that his life dedicated to God was a magnet to sinners, that the prostitutes, that the Roman soldiers, that the thieves, the tax collectors, that the rebels, the zealots, that the drunkards liked hanging out with Jesus. And why is it that the religious people couldn't stand him? The real question is, why is it the opposite today? Why is it that the sinners, the drunkards, those who are outside now want nothing to do with the church. But it's something that becomes exclusive within the Christian community. You see, if we are going to be like Jesus, it seems that we need to be thinking about how he conducted himself because he is our example. I wonder how many of us have friends that we hang out with that are outside of our Christian faith? Or have we become exclusive? Oh, I don't hang out with them because, you know, they have a foul mouth. They cuss. I was at a, a wedding this past week, and I was talking to someone I hadn't seen in a long time. And, and he'd grown up, basically the last 10 years, he'd been involved with Christian ministry in some form or another. And I asked him, hey man, how are you doing? How's life? I haven't seen you in a long time. He goes, oh, it's good. But you know, right now I, ha I have to be working. I'm not working you know, like I was involved with ministry. I'm outside. And man, these people, I hate these people. They cuss. Man, they're always saying stuff to me. They're trying to get me to do this. And as he started saying these things, I just started thinking about Jesus. And they loved to be with Jesus. And Jesus loved to be with them. But this guy said, oh, man, I can't stand them. I can't stand the way they talk. I can't stand the way they think. I just want them to go away so I can live in my bubble, so I can be comfortable. And you see, we need to conform to the image of Jesus and not conform Jesus to our image. And what we think is holy, what we think it means to be a disciple. 
Instead, we need to look at Jesus and be challenged by him. You know, it's a funny thing. In every culture, they make Jesus, when they have images of Jesus, to look like themselves. I notice in Denise's, you know, PowerPoint that we saw the other week that they had Jesus and he was black. And I said, that's not right. But then you look at Jesus that we know and he's European white. And he looks like a a hippie. And that's not right either. And I understand the mentality is, you know, I want to identify with Jesus and I want him, you know, to be someone that I can connect with, someone who I know identifies with me. And so we start kind of putting our image on him. And I understand that, but we need to be careful that we don't make our image of holiness the standard without seeing Jesus' image of holiness. Because what we have done now is to be a disciple of Jesus means you don't do these things. You don't get drunk. You don't sleep around. You don't do these things. And that's the definition of what it means to be a disciple. Now, it definitely involves our character and our morality and those things, but it's much more than that. The holiness of Jesus was gritty. It was attitude It was confrontational with the religious people as well as with the Roman government. It didn't bow to any of those things. But it reached out and cared for everyone who was lost. And that's what we want to grab hold of, of what it means to really follow after Jesus and to put aside the stereotypes and the pictures that we have of Jesus that are just so clean and proper and see him as he really is and worship him as he really is. And he tells us the first thing you need to do is recognize that God is one that God is holy, that God stands alone. And then you need to know who this God is because unless you know who this God is, and we know that through the person of Jesus, you're going to worship him the wrong way. You're going to think of what it means to look like a Christian and miss the heart of God of what it is to be a Christian. My son, Daniel, when he was young, he liked to play baseball. And you know how cute they are when they're real small? You know, the, the hats cover half their head because their heads are so small and they don't quite fit. You know, and they've got the T-shirt, you know, and it says Hilltoppers are on, on it or something like that. And he's got this little glove that, you know, he just loves. He still doesn't know how to use it quite yet. And I remember one time he, he came up to me and he goes, Dad, Dad, am I a baseball player? And he made this pose. And it was just like a baseball card. You know, you see those cards where the guy is like this. And he made this pose. Dad, am I, I'm going to be a baseball player. You think I could be a baseball player? And he made this pose, you know, and he just like looked so cute. And he's serious face, you know, man, this is, this is all I got to do to be a baseball player. Wear the uniform, put the glove on, put the hat on, and stand like this. And we have this image of Christianity in the same way. All I got to do to be a Christian is have this appearance. It's like, no, son, you need to be able to take a ground ball to the chest. You need to be able to throw that ball across the field and 
make a frozen rope to get someone out. No, son, you need to be able to hit the... It takes a lot to be... I didn't say that. You know, he's five years old. I'm not going <laughs> to... Sorry, son. No. <laughs> you just don't have what it takes. <laughs> Next, you know. But we understand what it takes. It's not just what you look like. It's who you are. And... To be a disciple of God involves all these areas of our lives. And to understand it clearly, I think it's important to recognize that it's about all these things in our life converging. It's about having a right thinking, the way you think, having this concept of who God is, understanding who he is, knowing who he really is, how he really loves what he does, and again, all these things are through the person of Christ, and having that be in your mindset. Remember, a disciple is like their rabbi, their teacher. How did Jesus think? What was his attitude and posture towards those who were sinful? The woman caught in adultery, brought before Jesus. What was the first thing he told her? Where are your condemners? Neither do I condemn you. That was the first thing he said. Now, everyone wants to know, well, what about the second one? Remember, go and sin no more. What about that? Don't forget, go and sin no more. No, remember this. I don't condemn you. That was the first thing he said. Remember that. How are you thinking about people? Are you jumping to square two before you ever get to square one? We have to think like Jesus thought. If we are going to be like Jesus, we have to act like Jesus act. We have to have the right actions. And this is where we have this dichotomy that takes place. A lot of people have this knowledge of what it means to be a Christian. I know what it means to follow after Christ. I, I've read the Bible. I've grown up in Sunday school. I know all those things. Well, do you do any of them? Well, you know, I do these things when they're convenient to me. I go to church when I'm comfortable. I obey or read the scriptures or allow God to be a part of my life when it's convenient for me. And we've got this Christianity that thinks, well, if I know about it, that's all I need. And it's more about what we can get. We, we've changed Christianity to accommodate our culture. It's kind of like that MasterCard commercial, you know, house for $400,000, car, $50,000. Armani suit, $2,000. A God that allows us to have it all, priceless. You know, it's like, I have this God who will cater to what I want, and we have this way of believing that makes God a part of what we want instead of God is one. And he wants us to think about him the right way, and he wants us to live the right way. A lot of times what happens, there, there's this understanding, it's called cognitive dissonance. And what that means is we have an understanding of how something is supposed to be, but when we see something else that contradicts it, we have to make a decision. And if that something else is what we like, then we have this problem and we change what we think. We do it all the time with political parties. You know, you're one political party and they start doing something that's against how you believe, but, you know, it's my party, so I got to go along with it. Or we do it with teams, you know, wow, that team's really no good and I don't like them, but I'm a Raiders fan. You know, I mean, it's like, 
you, you just kind of go into those things. And, and you, you have this understanding that what they're doing isn't what I want, but because I like them, I'll numb my thinking. And people do that in the church. Most of the time when someone comes up to me and they say, well, I'm having problems. I'm having doubts about my faith. I'm not sure if this is really true or not. Nine times out of nine and a half, the problem isn't what they believe. The problem is that they are involved with something that goes against what they know is right. You know, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, and if I have this life with Christ, this doesn't go well. I'm, I'm stealing at work. I'm embezzling. And if I have this life of Christ, you know, and so what I have to do is basically say, I have my doubts if this is all true, and I will compromise what I think about this so that my life can continue going on as it does. And you see, you can't do that and be his disciple. You have to have the right thinking and you have to do the things that he wants you to do. There has to be this coercive work between what God says and what I live. And he doesn't expect you to get it perfect. He already knows you're going to fall on your face. Look at everyone in the Bible. Everyone. Who do you want to talk about? Solomon? And his thousand wives? And that sort of red flag to anyone, you know? Hello? What about David? He took someone else's wife and killed him. Hello? What about Peter? He denied the Lord three times. You see, being a disciple means knowing who God is. And following him as we see him in Jesus. And when we fall on our face, we get back and he says, I don't condemn you. Let's go. And I follow him next step. And it goes back to that third one, the right feeling, having this attitude. You see, because faith is about conviction. Faith is about the things that we want and desire. As I've shared before, you can know the right thing and love the wrong thing and you will make the wrong decision. You can know what's right, but if you love what's wrong, you will make the wrong decision because you will go where your heart is. And so God has to have your heart. He has to have your mind. He has to have your strength. He has to have all of you. And that sweet spot in the center is where we want to get to if we are going to be disciples of Jesus. To a place where our lives are surrounded by who he is and now we start to look like him. Now we start to think like him. Now we start to act like him. Now we start to care like he cares. And this is mandatory. This isn't a suggestion. This is what we are about. We are to be disciples and we are to make disciples. And discipleship is missional in concept. 
In other words, if we are going to be a follower of Jesus, then our attitude is going to be to go out and make disciples of all nations. Jesus didn't say, I want you to go and save people. No, he said, I want you to go make disciples. What is that? That's thinking like God, acting like God, feeling the things that God feels. What does God feel? Look at Jesus. What does God think? Look at Jesus. What did he say? How does Jesus feel? He wept over Jerusalem. That's what it means. And so Jesus is our picture of God, understanding who God is, understanding what he's about, and now allowing that to be a part of our lives, following after him and recognizing those things and being on guard of those things that we want to manipulate God into our lives because we do it all the time. So I can get away with it. And so we have that cognitive dissonance where I really want to keep doing this, but I know it goes against God, and so I'm going to find a church that you know caters to that. Oh, good, this church, they don't talk about that stuff. I can go here, rock with them. I don't know what that was. <laughs> anyway, pretend you didn't see that. Uh, you see, Jesus... In Matthew 23, said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy. You've got one part right, but you've neglected the important part. And it does us no good if we are focused on one thing, but we miss the other things. And so we have to push forward until we are whole, that we understand who we really are supposed to be. I heard a story. There was this bird. bird was free, flying around, just enjoying life. And then it heard this voice. It said, Worms for a feather. And I thought, what is that? And there was the devil selling worms. They're the biggest, juiciest worms as far as worms go. And the bird flew up and it was a little apprehensive and said, what is this to say? Well, he goes, I'll give you one of these great worms and all you have to do is give me a feather. The bird said, any feather? He said, yeah, any feather, it doesn't matter. The bird saw the worm there, you know, just all purple and, and moving around. Thought it'd help you with your after lunch activities. And the bird said, okay. And it pulled off this little feather, gave it there, and then here you go, here's your worm. And the worm was delicious as far as worms go. The bird ate the worm and just was, oh man, that was great. Went flying out, had a great day. Thinking about that worm all day, it just tasted so great. Next day, flying around, heard the voice again. There he was, the devil again. Worms for a feather. Hey, that was a good deal last time. Goes again and gives another feather. Gets another worm and flies off. This is great. And it was going on day after day. I don't have to go digging. I don't have to work for it. I can just go, give a feather, eat the worm. Go One day the bird goes back there, gives the devil a feather, takes the worm and goes to fly off and it falls to the ground. And he realizes 
I've eaten all these worms, I've gotten fat, even though they are mostly protein. <laughs> but I've given away my feathers. And I didn't notice it yesterday, but it was harder to fly. I didn't recognize it. And you see, we live lives of a thousand compromises that keep us from being like Jesus. Because there's something that we like, something that we want to hold on to that takes our focus, takes our attention. And we don't realize that we could be flying. We don't realize that there is nothing better than the love of God. Book of Revelation, John says, of Jesus says, you have you have left, you have forsaken your first love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you need to love him with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And you need to love others like you love yourself. And you see what happens to most of us is we have neglected that love. It is not first. It is not paramount in our lives. And we've gone after the worms and we've given up the feathers and we've given up the work of God in our lives. We've, we've quenched the ability for the Spirit to use us in power because we want to live a life of compromise. And then we're wondering, why can't I fly? Why can't I move forward? Why am I so defeated? And you don't realize you've been giving away the things that matter. You've been neglecting them for things that don't. Isaiah says, why do you buy what is not bread? Why do you spend your money on something that isn't going to satisfy? And so we as followers of Christ need to recognize that what it means to be a Christian is to be like Jesus that we have been called to be his disciples. We haven't been called to join a church. We've called to follow in his footsteps, to do what he does, to think what he thinks, to feel what he feels. We have called to be like him. God has shown up at our door and said, this is what I want you to be. And we need to make the decision to follow after him with our heart, with our soul, with our mind. And if we do, we will love those around us as we love ourselves. And that's what is necessary for us in our community to make a difference. Because if we are not following Jesus, we will not represent him. You know, the front of our bu bulletin, I I've shared this story with most of you before, it says, embolden one another to begin changing the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. I remember when this came to me. I was praying, God, what is Genesis going to be about? I want to have a statement that represents us. I, I want to know how we can best present ourselves so that people will know what we are about. And I'd been thinking about it, and I'd been praying about it, and I'd been like, God, I'd like something witty, maybe like a three-point thing, you know. I read these other people's, theirs were pretty cool. What, what have you got for us? And I remember driving, I was out in the valley, and I was coming home from a dog training lesson, and all of a sudden, this phrase, the sentence came into my mind. 
And I believe it was from God because I don't know when I've used the word embolden ever in my life. All of a sudden it was embolden one another. I was like, huh. It means to strengthen each other. To begin changing the world. How are we going to change the world? By effectively representing Jesus Christ. If we were like Jesus more, more people would want to be like us. Why? Because we are like him. And as he is Jesus, that's what we are supposed to be in this world. And that is going to be our goal in the next few weeks is to understand what does that encompass? What does that look like? What does it mean to make disciples? Let me leave you with this just to, to get your mind thinking. When Jesus called his disciples, were they Christian? You mean you make disciples out of people who aren't Christian? Anyway, I'll leave you with that. Mull it over. We'll talk about it next week. Let's pray. Father, we, we began by just recognizing your love for us and how much you love us. And Father, there is this willingness to step into a relationship with you, to want to be like you when we recognize how much you care for us. That not only are you God and you know what's best, but you are a God who really cares for what is best for us. That when you ask us to be like you, to be your disciples, to give up everything that we have, to take up our cross and follow after you, you are not asking us to do something that is less but you are asking us to do something that will make us more, that will give us the ability to fly, that will connect us with the God of all creation. And so I, I pray, Father, that we would not hesitate, that we would not look back, that we would not give in to compromise but we would wholeheartedly love you with everything that we've got, that we would give of you, Lord, our time. We would give our passion, that we would give our finances, that we would give our love and devotion, that we would turn over our ethics, that we would allow you to invade, Father, the way we think, the way we feel, and the things that we do. And that you would begin to make us more like you, Jesus. Father, if we are going to make a difference in our community, it's got to begin within us. If we are going to represent you, Father, you need to show up within us. And Lord, we cannot do this alone. God, I do not want to try and be like you. I want you to change me. I want you to make me what I cannot be without you. I want you to give me a new heart. Put your spirit within me. 
want you to change the way I think. Renew my mind. And I want you to be my strength. I will be able to do all things if you will strengthen me, Jesus. So this morning, we yield ourselves to you. We ask, Father, that you would allow us to be your disciples. That you would call us as you called Peter. That you would call us as you called the others. And that we would leave and follow after you. We would not be those who chose to follow you no more because we didn't like the cost. So Lord, today we we recognize the cost. We make up our heart's mind to follow after you. Be honored in our life, we pray. Lord, I do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.